Picture the flag on a pirate ship. What do you see? A grinning skull and bones crossed in an ominous X? Those bones are always gleaming white. But have you ever thought about how they got that way? Those pristine bones used to be wrapped in sheets of muscle that moved around them, skin and hair that protected them. This episode tells the story of how a living, breathing organism turns into a pile of bones, and how those bones can tell us about the lives they led hundreds or even thousands of years ago. The old saying is wrong. In a way, dead men do tell tales. Bones have stories to tell. Welcome to the Bone Lab. As biologists, we tend to think about how bones develop and grow in living organisms and how they carry us through our lives. We can look through a microscope and show you how bone cells divide, how cells produce the hard mineral and tough fibers that make a femur, how individual cells die. But what happens to bones after the organism dies? Hello. Hi. This is great. Thanks for sending this Britney Spears device. This is Maisha Alexander, a trained anthropologist and prolific blogger. We've linked to her website on our own blog. She walked us through decomposition step by step, in the middle of a blizzard, no less. The initial part of decay happens right after you die. The fluids that are in your cells start to leak out and bacteria starts to feed. What starts to happen is the liquids and solids begin to turn into gases. And these gases start to emit and release themselves within your body and your body goes through something called bloat. The environment makes a huge, huge impact on the time frame for when this really happens. Bloating starts anywhere between zero and three days, depending on how hot the environment is. After that, the gases start mixing together and the skin turns orange, yellow, and brown. This is a process called marbling. So your body has become this huge buffet of tasty. So the flies are coming, they're laying eggs, and then you start to purge. It's probably the worst phrase in the world to describe what's happening at this point because all the gases and the liquid are now beginning to pull around the body in this black nitrogen-loaded ick. <laughs> if you think that's gross, you don't even want to hear her describe mummies. Have you ever eaten... Okay, I'm about to ruin all your favorite snacks. <laughs> Have you ever eaten, like, dried fruit? The speed and nature of decomposition really depend on environmental conditions. What she described before happens in a moderate climate, and through that process, all the soft parts of the body decay. After maybe a year, we're left with just the skeleton. To study bones in a lab environment, though, there are ways to speed this process up. Oh, here's the skull. In Kate's lab, they actually keep a terrarium of flesh-eating beetles to help clean the bones that they study. Oh. <laughs> Here, she's putting a frozen rat into the tank. This will probably be gone in about a week. Over the course of a few days, the beetles will completely strip the flesh from the bones. See how clean, like, the detail that you can see, they really get into the little nooks and crannies. So this is a whole uh, ecosystem. The adults actually oh. look like beetles, the little crawly things that look kind of like centipedes. Uh -huh. Those are the larvae, and those are mainly the ones that do the eating. The beetles are so meticulous in their feeding that they clean flesh from places that would be virtually inaccessible to dissection tools. 
the brain, the flesh between delicate ribs, it's all gone and we can retrieve even teeny tiny bones of a rat paw from our beetle colony. So, if an asteroid hits Earth tomorrow, what will people find in 5,000 years? What will that tell them? I can tell lots of stuff from the bones. Bones don't lie. First thing we do when we get a set of human remains is we start what's called a biological profile. We start to put together who this person was. One of the things that we look for is height, ancestry, the person's sex, whether they're male or female. These are just a few things that anthropologists can learn from bones. If they want to estimate height, they can measure the length of bones. A longer thigh bone usually belongs to a taller person. A person's sex can be determined by the width and shape of the pelvis. In addition to learning all this about an individual, we can learn a lot about entire societies by studying large numbers of skeletons. So we're actually trying to reconstruct the life of that individual person. And then that individual within all of that population in that cemetery, and then within that cemetery, within that whole culture, and then within that whole culture and how it affected the world at that time. It may actually still affect the world today. This is Christine Lee, an assistant professor at California State University, Los Angeles, and a bioarchaeologist who travels all over the world to piece together ancient lives and cultures, particularly in China and Mongolia. It's very interesting. One of the cemeteries I've been working on recently in northwestern China, women are missing, but they're missing from all the cemeteries in that area. Nobody's ever been able to figure out what it is. Christine was finding cemeteries with only men. This tells us a lot about how the culture viewed women and their status in society. Women may not have been considered part of the family, particularly women who married in or who were concubines. Some of these traditional views still affect how women are treated in contemporary society. Everywhere I work is old school. You know, the Chinese are very old school. The Mongolians are old school. The Egyptians are totally old school. Literally, I have archaeologists on the digs tell me that I shouldn't be there because I'm a woman. Many locals see her work as a man's work. They think she should be at home with a husband and kids. Unfortunately, these biases are probably familiar for many of us. But Christine didn't let the naysayers keep her from working in the field. The first time I worked in Mongolia, I was able to get on an excavation for two months. The only issue was you have to camp in a tent. And I had never been camping before. And when they asked about it, I lied. Like, we'll be in a tent. You might not be able to bathe for days. If you do bathe, it's in a cold river fled by glaciers. It's going to be a lot of men. It could be chaos. I was like, I'll be fine. I'll do it. So I got a tent, and I, like, practiced putting it together in the living room, like, multiple times. Like, I could do it blind. And I was, I was leaving, and I was telling family members, I'll be fine as long as it's not raining and it's not dark. We fly to Mongolia. It's like a 20-hour flight. And then we take a train from Beijing into Mongolia, and the train takes, like, a day and a half. And then we arrive, and then we buy all our equipment, and then it's a two-day drive into the countryside. And we arrive at 1 in the morning in a thunderstorm. Everyone gets out and everyone's starting to put their stuff together. And I'm just standing in the rain crying. And no one can tell because it's raining and crying and crying. I can't figure out how to put the tent together in the dark. And next, standing next to me is the cultural anthropologist. And she looks at me. She goes, are you crying? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I am too. It was like a scene out of a movie to me. So all of a sudden, someone turned on the headlights to the cars. So you have to be careful how much electricity and gas you use with the cars because there's no gas stations. You have to bring your gas and everything with you. 
So someone finally turns on the lights of one of the cars and four Mongolians show up beside me and they're like, Christina, this is your tent? And I was like, yes. And they opened it up and they put together the tent in less than three minutes and the cultural anthropologist tent and then put our luggage inside, shoved me inside, zipped it up and then patted the tent and we're like, Christina, you okay now? And I was like, yeah. And I remember thinking, I understand Genghis Khan now. She's in a foreign land, she doesn't speak the language, and the weather is miserable. But the hosts ignored the rain and mud and they solved her problem. That's the kind of grit you need in your army if you're going to conquer the world. The worst skeleton I've ever seen was a Mongol warrior who was from very far west. So if he had still had hair and everything, he probably would have been blonde. His remains don't look like others in the area. Based on that information, Christine formed a mental image down to even his blonde hair. It's incredible to think that there are average skeletal structures for people from different regions. The mandible, or jawbone in particular, looks different in people from different ethnicities. The bottom of the average Asian mandible, for example, tends to be flatter than a European or African mandible. Asian skulls also tend to have a flatter nasal bone, the bridge of your nose. But how do these differences arise? Subtle differences can evolve when people are separated geographically. Let's say half of a tribe moved from a desert region to a lush mountain region. After a few hundred years, the two places became separated by a river. The two halves of the tribe never interacted again. Over many centuries, the mountain tribe and the desert tribe would start to look very different. Maybe many people with flat mandibles happened to end up in the mountain tribe, Over many generations, that feature might begin to dominate. Because Christine studies such large populations in neighboring regions, she's learned to pick up on these nuances. She would recognize if someone had traveled across the river to a place where their flat mandibles are not common. He might have been one of the peoples from Kazakhstan, but he was not Asian. But it looked like he was part of the Mongol conquest, and he was severely hurt in battle and had been knocked off his horse. And half of his face is gone. That probably happened when they tried to knock him off the horse, and the impact of the fall was so hard that he cracked his teeth on the other side. Because Mongolians learned to ride horses from childhood, broken arms were really common. Christine has learned to recognize the characteristic fractures that occur from falling off a horse. But then he was important enough that they brought him back to Mongolia, and he probably survived for about three or four months before he died from his injuries. So you could tell it's healing, and that his face had been mutilated, and then they buried him as a full Mongol, regardless of where he originally came from. I've looked at skeletons on both sides of the Great Wall, so the Chinese side and then the northern side, and seen what they look like. That was definitely, for those soldiers, a very difficult life. This warrior was clearly an important figure, So we were curious about how the local people felt about scientists coming in and digging up the remains of their ancestors. As long as you explain to people what you're doing and why you're doing it, I've never encountered any local population that was upset because you're trying to give voice back to people who have disappeared for thousands of years. You know, I've never asked other people what their beliefs are because that sort of gets into religion scientists don't really like to talk about it. I think most people that do what I do, you have to decide what you think happens to the soul after death, and you have to decide what you think of these vessels. So based on my religion and my upbringing, 
these are the containers, the souls have gone and have been reincarnated. And so these are more like a footprint or just an empty vessel. For the most part, regardless of our beliefs, we know that it's a privilege to do what we do, and that the samples and specimens we get are a sacrifice, and they are only available and used because people hope they can help improve the lives of future generations. I think through work like this, you can tell people that lives are meaningful, that people remember, and people will cherish what was before. And it doesn't even have to be like only Asian people can appreciate what I do in Asia and only Muslims can appreciate what I do in the Middle East. You know, it's quite universal, this whole experience of life and death. We want to thank Maisha Alexander and Dr. Christine Lee for Skyping with us. They shared so many stories and strange facts. If you want to learn more, check out Maisha's blog, The Rockstar Anthropologist. It's excellent. Also, Christine is a National Geographic Explorer and a TED Fellow. You can find links to our guest pages on our website, bonelabradio.org. This episode was produced by our team, Jeannie Bailey, Dr. Jennifer Fish, Jenny Chi, and me, Kate Waranowitz. Ralph St. Louis makes our website pretty. My sister, Michelle Waranowitz, makes our art pretty. And thank you for listening to The Bone Lab. If you have questions about the show or just want to say hi... We're on Facebook, and we tweet at Bone Lab Radio. If you like the show, please consider just sharing it with your friends. If you really like the show, consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. It'll help us grow our audience. And if you really, really liked the show, we have a monthly newsletter. If you sign up, you'll be the first to know when we release episode three. We have a tracklist for all the songs we used in this piece on our blog. And we want to thank our generous sponsor, the American Association of Anatomists.